And welcome, one thirty Saturday. Good to have you along. Skulls here, along with my uh, good pals James Fireman and Tamara Gopian Partners, San Firu Tamarkin LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in this entire country. Here is what you need to do for the uh, the next hour. First of all, listen up, and then secondly, if you have any questions about something you're dealing with in your daily life as it pertains to a disability insurer, maybe you've been cut off, maybe your uh, claim has been denied, maybe you've been asked to appeal. There could be a million different things that are uh, giving you tons of anxiety dealing with that big, bad insurance company. That's fine. There's answers. There's easy answers. There can be sometimes complex for you and I, but in the hands of James or Tamar, it can all be sorted out. So the first step, if you would like, because you're often that fourth person on air with us, we'd love to get you on air and uh, call us, talk to us, ask your questions. You got an hour, 416-872-1010. If you want to text us a question, you can go to 71010 as well. And there's always help at disabilityrights.ca. That is the uh, email address we will continue to use on the show. We're going to get to some of those very shortly. But uh, James, Tamar, good, uh, good to have you guys back here. Nice talking to you. Either one or both of you probably have a uh, case you want to talk about. Who is up first? Who's up first? I think yeah. I think I am. I don't know nice. if James is. Is James, are you there? We got him on I the am, phone. Yeah, I am here. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah. Loud Beautiful. and clear. Okay. All the right. three of us together. This is awesome. So, <laughs> uh, look, I wanted to start off talking about uh, something that we've talked about a couple of shows here and there, but not that consistently. And that's a program that the federal government has started uh, and has in respect of individuals who have uh, suffered injuries or illnesses or permanent illness, frankly, uh, as it relates to the administration of a vaccine. It's Mm. called the Vaccine Injury Support Program. And, you know, there's not a lot of information actually out there. And I don't know how well known this program is, but we're, we're obviously looking into this because we are still obviously having lots of leads and consults and clients who are dealing with long COVID issues. And there are, of course, a whole subset of people that have had adverse reactions to the vaccination process uh, that's been going on in the country for the last couple of years. And so the criteria I thought was kind of something I wanted to focus on because it doesn't encapsulate everyone and everything as most government programs don't. And it sounds very similar to another program that we talk about a lot on our show, and that's the CPP disability uh, program and eligibility requirements for that program. Similar words, if you have a serious and permanent injury. And those are the words, the key words that uh, I know CPP disability claimants are looking for to get approved and very similar words used on the government website in respect of this vaccine injury program. What's less clear to me is, you know, what in the narrow scope is going to be required to demonstrate that the vaccine itself created or caused this kind of an adverse reaction such such that compensation is going to be flowing from that and in fact what truly is the compensation that's going to flow from this program because when you look to the drop down of the government menu of course it's not very clear they say very generally that compensation could look at like indemnity or some kind of death benefits or other compensation for medical expenses but a value isn't as clearly uh, noted. And I think that that's probably done with intention. So what we do know about it is that the rate of acceptance or approval for this program is very low right now, and that individuals are still going through the process of 
making applications and trying to understand, you know, what needs to be put together. And so if you're listening and this is resonating with you and you're looking for some compensation related to an injury or illness that you have that's serious or potentially permanent as a result of vaccination status, I encourage you to take a look at that program. And, you know, I'm happy to have a chat with anyone who's interested in going down this process of actually making the application and trying to figure out, look, what kind of medical information do I need to put together to actually, uh, you know, get approved for for compensation for a program like this? James, what do you think, pal? Well, I think that Tamara is getting over a a nice illness. And so I think it's only fair that we allow her to do all the heavy lifting today. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. No, in in all seriousness, um, I actually do have something that I wanted to talk about. Uh, It is a case that I'm actively working on out of province. It's a gentleman in his early 50s who has a family history of coronary artery disease. Uh, Very serious history. And he uh, was diagnosed with the disease himself when he was quite young, but was aware of it and took all reasonable steps to manage it. Leads a very healthy lifestyle, very physically fit. Uh, He's a marathon runner and he ran two large clinics. And even though he was on top of his health and was making sure that he was making all the right choices, sometimes you can't outrun your genetics. Mm -hmm. And he, the, the disease progressed and he had to have a quadruple bypass a few years back. And so He went on leave briefly, but came back because he wanted to work. And he even resumed running to some extent, not as he had before, but even resumed running. And he was monitoring himself closely and was followed by a cardiologist, of course. And most of of his testing post-surgery was pretty good, but he was still having some symptoms. He was still having some shortness of breath. He was still experiencing some angina. None of it was preventing him from being able to do his job, so to speak. He was able to go in. He was able to manage the responsibilities of his job on a day-to-day basis, but it was stressful. He was in a position of significant responsibility, and he had a lot on his plate. And as his symptoms started to get worse again, his cardiologist said, you can't keep doing this. You are going to die earlier if you keep working. It's as simple as that. His cardiologist says, you have to stop working. And so he did. And he applies for long-term disability. And he's denied. And he's denied without any medical assessment, without even a medical consult by the insurer. They just denied on the basis that there aren't any strict physical restrictions that he that prevent him from being able to do his job. And so they say that he's not disabled from work. And so he appeals, and this time they do consults, but they do a consult with a family doctor and a psychiatrist, not a cardiologist, and they don't do an assessment at all. And so the result is they maintain their denial, which is absurd. So I bring this up because I want to make sure that our listeners understand that being disabled from work doesn't mean that you are only entitled to your benefits if you are literally physically incapable of going to your job site and doing your job responsibilities. The law is actually very clear that if doing your job, doing your own occupation is unreasonable because it is going to shorten your life or prevent you from being able to recover, Mm 
then there is no requirement that you do so and you are entitled to benefits. And that's not a guess. That is the very clear language of the Supreme Court of Canada. So it is, in fact, the law of the land, and it is what all insurance companies must abide by. And very clearly in this case, they are not. They are ignoring a treating cardiologist who is saying, literally, if he has to keep working, he is going to die early. And they say, we don't care, and we don't even care if we get a cardiologist to take a look at this. He's not getting his benefits. Well, guess what? They got a big problem. Not only is he going to get his benefits, but now he's going to get a whole lot more than that. That is a textbook case of punitive damages. If there was ever bad faith in a case, this is it. So please understand that if your insurer is denying benefits where you have a condition that would allow you to actually do your job in a physical sense on a day-to-day basis, but where your doctors have clearly told you that you are risking your health by doing so, you should not be working and you are absolutely entitled to benefits. And if your insurer is not paying, give us a call because they should be. Tamar? You know, it's interesting because we talk about this type of issue, James, a lot in different permutations. And, and we do it in the context of this idea that disability insurers don't like to pay claims that are quote unquote preventative. And look, I mean, I haven't seen your client's full medical picture, James, but that's what it sounds like to me that the insurer is resisting this idea of paying the disability benefit that will prevent this individual, this client from, you know, shortening his life and this sort of thing. And they like to resist these types of claims because it is clearly a recipe for a prolonged disability. And at the end of the day, the insurer doesn't want to bring someone on claim that they know the medical picture isn't going to change, that it's going to be mostly the same thing, likely until this individual turns 65 years old. And that's a lot of months of benefits to pay, depending on how old your client is, James. And, you know, and I think that that's the trouble, though, is that the insurer, certainly at the claims level, is going to say, look, this is not what disability benefits are for. And yet we all know that the law says absolutely the opposite. And I think that that barrier, though, has discouraged a lot of people, A, from actually applying for disability benefits, B, from actually pursuing it once the insurer says no, and C, to actually be okay with the fact that they are entitled to these benefits. Because the insurance company is going to write to you and say, no, you're not entitled, you don't meet the test. And a lot of people are going to look at this letter and think to themselves, okay, so I guess the insurer must be right. And I hope our listeners are hearing from us that they are not correct. And I absolutely agree with James's assessment that this really does open the door for a claim against the insurance company, not only for the disability benefits, but these extra contractual, this over and above compensation, because the insurer took a, a, a silly position as it related to this, this claimant's disability. Guys, good opening, as always, with you two. Got to take a short break, though. We're going to get back into it. In the meantime, a chance for you to send along an email, which we're going to get to right after the break, help at disabilityrights.ca. But the phone call's here, and now you want to call in, be that uh, fourth voice, and ask some questions on air. We'd love to get you on 416-872-1010, or you can text your questions as well. We'll talk about and answer those. 71010 would be the route to do that. We'll continue right here, Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. 
All right, welcome back. It is one twenty Saturday, and uh, welcome if you're sticking around for the entire hour. Feel free to grab a phone, ask some questions. We can get you on air here and talk to us for sure. 416-872-1010. The other option is to send a text along if you want to do that. That is just 71010. And we always rely, of course, on the emails we get every show in that help at disabilityrights.ca. And if you want to reach out afterwards to either James or Tamar, they got great teams behind them, best in the biz for sure. You can do so. Uh, same email address, but the phone number this time is one 821 5900 Guys, let's get to Geraldine. First email F says, hey guys, I've uh, had depression and anxiety for most of my adult life, but it got much worse a few years ago. I started having panic attacks often and I went off work. I've been off work for a year and a half now. While I'm not having panic attacks as frequently, I still have them, especially when I think about work or try to take on too much. My insurer wants to send me for an independent medical assessment. I'm reaching out to you to see if I have any options with the insurance company's request for this assessment. If I do have to go, how do I make sure that their doctor is fairly assessing my situation? Tomorrow, go to. <laughs> go ahead, <laughs> sure. Uh, okay. So first and foremost, you have to understand the distinction between an independent medical assessment or evaluation. IME and treatment. So your insurer has an absolute right, if you want to get your benefits, to have you assessed by a qualified medical professional in a relevant uh, field of expertise. So if you are, for using the example of the client I was talking about first, if you have a heart condition, certainly your insurer would be entitled to send you to a cardiologist to uh, provide a independent medical evaluation where the cardiologist would assess you and write a detailed medical legal report that could be used, frankly, at that point by either side as evidence in the litigation. That they can do, and unfortunately, there is no way to really dispute that unless they are asking for an assessment for a doctor who is either not qualified or who has expertise that aren't relevant to the case. But that's a pretty unusual exception. It's not one that we ever really have to deal with. Treatment, on the other hand, is a different story. That's not what Geraldine's asking, but just to be sure our listeners understand the difference. If your insurer is saying that you need this particular treatment and we're sending you to this person to get it, that's a different story. Now, saying that you need this particular treatment may or may not be true. I would have your own doctor take a look at their treatment recommendations and provide you with their thoughts on whether or not that treatment is in fact necessary. It might be, it might not be. Oftentimes insurers will recommend treatment that is really just a band-aid that might help you in the short term, but isn't going to help you in the long run and sometimes may even be detrimental in the long run. So you definitely don't want to take the insurer's recommendation for treatment at face value, but you can't simply just ignore it. If you don't want to do it, you have to get an opinion from your doctor that is confirming that it is not something that is necessary or helpful. But if it is, if it is something that you do need to go through with, that does not mean that you're required to use the doctor treatment provider that the insurer is um, telling you to go see. Sometimes they'll even make it sound as though you're obligated to mm -hmm. use their medical professional. You're not. You're absolutely not. You are absolutely entitled to choose 
whichever treatment provider you wish, provided that they, of course, have the relevant experience and expertise to provide you that treatment. But that's not something that you have to do. In terms of what to do uh, when you go to the independent medical assessment, typically speaking, when you go, you're going to um, sign a series of documents letting you know that it is not the standard doctor-patient relationship and that they will be reporting uh, whatever uh, goes on to the insurer. So you don't have the confidentiality typically with the doctor. On your end, typically speaking, the doctors won't allow you to record what's going on. That certainly doesn't mean that you can't make notes. You could ask to go further. So if you had concerns about the fairness of the assessment, it wouldn't at all be inappropriate to request to have someone come with you and observe the the assessment. They may not agree. And I don't know whether the law says that they're required to allow you to. But if it's something that you want, I would have no hesitation in asking for that. And certainly if they agree, then have someone go with you to observe what's going on. Make a note in any case when you go of the time that you arrive and more importantly, the time where the professional who are you, who is supposed to be providing the assessment begins the assessment and the time when they end the assessment. You may be there in the office for two hours, three hours, what have you, but the doctor who's doing the assessment might only come in an hour and a half in, stick around for 15 minutes and leave. The rest of the time, you know, you're filling out forms or doing uh, self-questionnaires or what have you. And if the doctor's only there with you for 10 or 15 minutes, that's important to understand. Because if they're going to be providing an opinion but haven't spent enough time with you to be able to, to accurately assess your condition, depending on what it is, you may need more or less time, of course. But if they haven't spent an adequate amount of time, that's a relevant fact that you'll want to make a note of and make a record of contemporaneous. So when you go home, you want to make a record of that particular fact. And I wouldn't hesitate to bring a notebook in just to take any notes of anything that is relevant. This isn't about trying to pick them apart necessarily, but if there are concerns that you have, if there are uh, answers to questions that you've given where it doesn't sound as though the doctor is really hearing you um, or is factoring that into the way they're running the assessment, make a note of that. Make sure that that is accounted for and make sure that you send your list of concerns to the insurer shortly after having this assessment. I wouldn't hesitate to do any of that. Here's what I will say, though. Unlike what happens when you're sent for treatment, um, oftentimes the treatment providers and insurers want you to see have an inherent bias and I just wouldn't trust them to provide you with fair, with fair treatment. They have a motive uh, not just to serve their, the insurer because the insurer wants to get you off claim. So they have a motive to say that you've gotten better from that sense, but also so that they can say that they've done such a great job in getting you better. So you know, I wouldn't trust what the treatment providers have to say, but the assessments I have found in my experience, they tend more often than not to be relatively fair. And I find that the independent medical evaluations, when they actually send you for assessment, uh, as often as not, they tend to be helpful. They tend to uncover the underlying disability. And so I have less inherent concern about that, less cynicism about that, but you still have to be careful. Tamar? 
You know, uh, such a great answer, James, and such excellent advice. I I think where I want to focus on is some of the other information that Geraldine provided, which included the fact that she's been off work now for about a year and a half, and that she's continuing to have these panic attacks, sometimes triggered by thinking about thoughts about returning back to work or work-related type issues. And I want to focus on that because of two things. One, as we know, Generally speaking, the insurer is going to make a decision on Geraldine's claim about whether or not she's going to continue to qualify for disability benefits beyond that that two-year mark, that significant two-year mark. So when you're a year and a half into your disability claim, that process can involve a number of different things by the insurer to make that decision. And one of those things looks like it's going to be this assessment, this independent medical assessment that they're going to subject Geraldine to. The other thing, though, that they are required to do is to look at what your own doctors are saying about your treatment, your health, and to look at what opinions have been expressed about whether or not Geraldine's going to be capable about returning back to work. And so if, you know, Geraldine's looking at her options, I entirely agree with James about some of the protections around attending this assessment. But I think that it is also important to ensure that you're engaging your own medical team letting them know that this assessment is happening and ensuring that they've also provided their opinions and their support that regardless of what may be triggering Geraldine's panic attacks, that certainly those attacks along with, you know, I'm assuming lots of other symptoms related to her mental health are still preventing her from functioning to a point where she's capable of actually working. Guys, amazing answer as always. Complete for sure. Geraldine, if that didn't answer your question, which I can't see it did not, you can always reach out with a phone call, 1-855-821-5900. Both uh, Tamar and James always ready to uh, expand on that particular uh, that answer. MyDisabilityQuestions.com, that is yet another website for you to use. Free, anonymous, ask your questions. You can search the database, see if it's already been asked. If not, maybe uh, it will be in a future show as well. We'll get to a question from there when we come back, but we'll take a short break and continue on. The phone number, 411 416- Six eight seven two ten ten to get on live in the show or text seven ten ten as well. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show. It's the Bell Talk Radio Network. You betcha. One thirty-five. Good to have you uh, back along with us. John Scholes here, of course, with me. James Fireman, Tamara Gopian, courtesy Sanfiru Tamarkin LLP. Want to reach out to both or either? You can do so. It's one eight five five eight. Two one fifty nine hundred. Don't hesitate to pick up that phone later and have that uh, lengthier conversation, a private conversation, if you would. If you want to come on air and talk to us, ask your questions, you still got some time, about 25 minutes, give or take. That is 416-872-1010. Text is 71010. And another, I mentioned the email address as well, help at disabilityrights.ca anytime. You can also go to a website that is free and anonymous called mydisabilityquestions.com. As I mentioned, guys, from that website, going to get to our first one for today. Kind of a three-part question. Number one, do appeals have a deadline? Number two, and do appeals usually work even if my MRI report only changed slightly, i.e. got a little worse? And number three, uh, should I ask my insurance company if I try to go back to work on a gradual basis and it doesn't work, even though I tried, can it go back on LTD claim, even if my insurance company denied my claim after the old two-year change of definition date? James, what do you say, pal? Or tomorrow. I, say, I say let's let tomorrow answer. Nice. <laughs> I love these questions, by the way. And yep. this is such a great resource for the, our listeners, mydisabilityquestions.com. You get a very timely response, completely anonymous. And 
And, you know, these are excellent questions. So let's start with number one. Do appeals have a deadline? And I'm going to give a bit of a lawyer's response and say, no, but maybe, but no. Um, and so, so look, this is how it works. This is a conceived of process by the insurance companies. There's nothing in your policy typically that talks about appeals. And so it's not written down anywhere. What is the appeal process? What are the timelines with this appeal process? When are you supposed to appeal? When the insurance company is supposed to respond? So it's a little bit of a vacuum in terms of, you know, is there something solid here that I can rely upon if I do appeal that the insurance company, first of all, that I have to appeal in a certain time frame, and that the insurance company is going to respond to me in a timely way. This is primarily why we discourage individuals from going down this rabbit hole of appeals, because it isn't a prescribed time frame, and it's not like legal claims that have very specific rules around when the insurance company has to respond. And by the way, they must respond. So it's not going into this ether of not knowing, okay, look, I'm, I'm throwing up some further medical information. Is the insurance company going to respond or not? And whether or not that's even really going to change the initial decision that they made to decline your claim. But we get this question a lot. And the reason why we do is because once these disability claims are denied, the insurance company will inevitably at the back end of their letter will say, but if you don't agree with us, you can appeal, but you must submit this appeal by X number of days. So 20 days, 15 days, whatever it is, 30 days, some arbitrary time frame where you must provide documentation to appeal your the denial of their disability claim. And people feel like this is something that's like hard and fast. And I want to dispel the notion that it is. It is not hard and fast. In fact, Courts have said that the insurance company has an obligation to review further medical information that you've submitted within a reasonable period of time. And they haven't really said, look, that must be two weeks, three weeks, four months, two months, whatever that is. Because again, this is a process that's not regulated. It's something that the insurers want you to exercise so that they, they keep you into their process and you're not getting the legal advice that you should be getting, which is if your doctors are still supporting that you're totally disabled, you should be challenging the insurance company and starting a legal claim to do that so that you're not in this quagmire of like, do I need to appeal by a certain given period of time? So that's the first part of this in my mind is this, is there an appeal deadline? There is not. Uh, it's not hard and fast. And it certainly seems arbitrary from what the insurers are communicating to claimants. But the second part of the question was, look, it, it does it usually even work if I've got a report that says something slightly different and it says that it's worsening? Look, I'm a little bit cynical about this because I generally don't see that they do work. So, you know, do you want to submit that information to the insurer? I suppose you could. You know, is it going to change the adjuster's decision? Probably not, especially if it's slightly worse or it's essentially the same type of medical information that the insurance company has already evaluated and has already said to you, no, right? No, we're not going to approve benefits on this basis. And what makes it even worse generally is that you've got the same individual, the same adjuster who said no to you the first time, 
who's looking at that initial appeal again. And it's human nature. Once you make a decision, it's very unlikely you're going to change your mind. And we also know that there's other factors here with insurers. And once they can communicate that cutoff, then they're putting the, the obligation and the onus back on you to demonstrate that, in fact, they've made the wrong decision. It's very, very unlikely that that process is going to be successful, particularly when there are no timelines to keep them honest about when they're supposed to respond. So you're losing a lot of time, lots of frustration, and really doesn't really get you to the point that I think most people want to be, which is to have those benefits back again and have the time that they need to recover. I'm going to take a pause there, though, because before we get to question three, I'm interested, James, if you have anything to add to number one or number two on these you know, issues about deadlines to appeal and whether they're worthwhile to actually go down this path. So it's funny because I, I mean, I have this rant about appeals that I almost go into automatically when I see the word appeal. And I'm glad that you answered this question because I would have done that. <laughs> um, there's a whole other political anecdote I could share, but let's stay, let's stay on point here for a moment. Um, the, the, the point that I am bumping on is the second part of this question about the MRI. And the, the person who wrote into mydisabilityquestions.com to ask this question noted that the MRI only changed slightly. So first of all, it's a fair question to ask whether a slight change would or should even have any impact on the decision. Even if we give the insurer the benefit of the doubt, which I'm not really willing to do, but for the purposes of answering this, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. If it is only a slight change, you probably shouldn't expect a change in their, uh, in their response, whether or not they are correct in their assessment. Uh, I agree entirely, though, with what you said. Even if it was a relatively significant change, I still really doubt that it's going to change the decision because you have to remember that they have a motivation to conclude that you're not disabled from work. That is where they want to wind up because once they get there, they have you off claim, they're paying out less money. That is better for them. That's how they make money. There you go. I'm, I'm into my rant already. <laughs> um, the reality is if you don't have new information and by new information, I mean, really new information that is going to fundamentally change the nature of how anyone looking at this is going to see what your disability is about, then don't expect it will change the result. Unless, you know, if you've been dealing with this uh, undiagnosed foot pain, for example, they can't figure out what's, what's going on and you can't work because your job requires you to be standing all day. And then all of a sudden they discover that it's actually cancer that's causing this. I would submit that. That might change their mind. Now, it actually shouldn't have any change on the result because the reality is it is about your ability to function. And whether it's caused by cancer or something else, if you can't function, you can't function. So you should still be entitled. But nonetheless, there is an inherent bias towards uh, objective diagnoses that is not appropriate, but is still there. And if you now have an objective diagnosis where you didn't before, that's probably worth sending in. But a slight change in a condition that they're already aware of, I think it's probably just a waste of time. Uh, 99 times out of 100, it's not going to get you anywhere, maybe more. Tomorrow, what do you think? Anything uh, last minute to add before we, uh, before we break or we got to well, cover? So look, I mean, I, I think that we've made it pretty clear what our uh, thoughts are about the appeal process, <laughs> you know, and I, and I think that I can't say enough, you know, how frustrating it can be. Uh, you know, I, I'm working on a file right now 
uh, John and James, where uh, by the time she came to, to get assistance from us, she had been off work for over two years. And the appeal process in and of itself took over a year for the oh. adjudication. So, you know, it, it's it's tough. It's really, really tough with progressive health issues in particular. And, not, and she had never been approved for benefits from the start. So she never could have relied on these benefits to begin with. And, you know, took took the face value of the insurer saying, hey, we invite you to appeal. Uh, and it just took forever and a day only to get communicated that further decline. And lo and behold, she's come to us for assistance. And I got to tell you, we're, we're moving it faster than the insurance company ever did through their appeal process. Guys, one more short break and we'll get back into a, a couple more emails with the remaining time. How do you send them along? Help at disabilityrights.ca. But to call in now, 416-872-1010. You still got a few minutes to get on air or text us at 71010 as well. This is the Disability Law Show. It's the Bell Talk Radio Network. All right, welcome back to it. A few minutes to go at one uh, fifty here on Saturday afternoon. Good to have you along for the show. Want to get back into the uh, the question we had, guys, from mydisabilityquestions.com. And a reminder to you, if you're listening today, that is a free and anonymous website you can use to do exactly that. Ask your questions. Uh, sometimes they get answered here on the radio. The other times they will get answered online very quickly by a member of James or Tamara's team or someone else at the firm reaching out to them, by the way, one 821 5900 Kind of a uh, part three to that uh, previous question that we were doing before the break guys who appeals have a deadline um and usually you know working mra changes slightly uh, various questions so I, I we already answered i want to leave that to you guys but the third part is i want to go through this again uh should i ask my insurance company if i try to go back to work on a gradual basis does the gradual basis doesn't work even though i tried getting back an ltd claim if my insurance company denied my claim after the two-year change of definition you can see why this is confusing for people tomorrow when you think about the third part so, so it's it can be confusing because you're trying to figure out. Look, you know, should I be at least demonstrating to the insurer that I can't do this, right? Um, and so maybe I try and make some perfunctory attempt, some limited attempt to go back, and that should absolutely prove to the insurance company that my disability benefits should continue. And and I actually think it's it's counterintuitive. I actually don't like that scenario unless you've got the endorsement from your doctors or your primary treating doctor saying, yeah, let's give this a go. I never want individuals to put their health at harm's way just to prove a point to the insurance company. Because I can tell you the insurer's goals are very simple. They want you off claim. And so if you make that return to work attempt and you make it prematurely, regardless, you're going to have to demonstrate that you are entitled to benefits and go back on claim. And once they have you off, they don't want you back on claim. And so that can in and of itself be a really high, you know, hard road to climb with the insurer to further demonstrate total disability, especially if you're past the two-year mark or around that two-year mark. Because now the question becomes, not whether or not you're capable of returning back to your own occupation and earning, you know, 100% of your salary and everything else that the insurer has looked at and approved your claim upon. Now they're going to look at the any occupation phase of the policy. And we know that that threshold for earnings is much lower. It's now typically pegged to what you're getting as your LTD benefit, which we know is roughly two thirds of your actual earnings. So the insurance company is going to look at that. They're going to look at a lower earning level. They're going to look at, is there any occupation you can do? And they're not, gonna, they're not really going to care whether or not you were successful in the return to work back to your own occupation. And so that scenario, you know, this idea of attempting a return 
really only makes sense to me is if it's endorsed by your doctor and not endorsed by your doctor as like, hey, let's give this a go and prove to the insurance company you can't. Actually endorsed for it to be legitimate and has a fighting chance of being successful. Because otherwise, I think you're going to have a hard time, um, you know, trying to demonstrate to the insurer of total disability and trying to get your benefits to kick back up again. What do you think, James? Well, I, I always think when the issue of going back to work comes up, this is what I always tell my clients, which is first and foremost, it's not really a legal decision. You should not be determining whether or not you go back to work following your disability based on what an insurance company says or, frankly, what a lawyer says. It's not up to me. It's up to you and your doctor. So if your doctor is telling you that it's okay for you to try, that's a different story. And if that's the case, you don't need, you know, if, if I've been hired for, say, and I have a an ongoing legal claim and someone says they can go back to work, they don't need my permission to do it. They can go back to work if they can and should go back to work. So, you know, that's really the way that I look at it first and foremost. Make the decision based on the medical evidence, not what the insurance company is saying or not what your lawyer is saying. But if you are going to go back to work, I will tell you that in my own experience in handling these cases, the times where a return to work is successful is when my client or the person who's asking me the question feels confident that they're going to succeed. If you feel based on you know, how, you, how you've progressed in your disability, based on what your doctors are telling you, based on all of the other factors, if you have a feeling that you are going to succeed, if you think that you are set up for success, then that's likely the way that it will go. If you feel like you're being forced back and you feel like you're doing it because you have no choice, but you have no idea how you're going to get through the day, it isn't going to last long. That's just the way that these things play out. So if that is the scenario, I would listen to what your doctor is saying. If they're telling you don't go back to work, don't go back to work. I know that there's a practical issue that comes along with that. That means that you're not going to be getting any income. You're not going to be getting any benefits because your insurer has said they won't pay if you don't go back to work. And they're not going to pay if you do go back to work. So there is a financial aspect to this that some people eventually just say, okay, well, I have to give it a try. I understand if that is your financial reality and you have to give it a try, then what can I really say other than make sure you take reasonable steps? to ensure that you have the best opportunity to succeed. So ask for whatever accommodations your doctor is going to tell you are necessary. If your doctor says that you need to strictly abide by a schedule or avoid certain types of activities, then make sure that you follow those instructions. Make sure that your employer is aware of the accommodations that you require. And if you are being asked to go beyond the accommodations that you that were agreed on before, make sure that you bring that to your supervisor's attention and that this is reported to your doctors as well, as well as how that impacts your symptoms. You have to make sure that there is a medical record of that so that if you are not able to continue, there is a document that shows the reason why. It isn't just going to look to someone that you've just decided you don't want to do it anymore, but in fact, it will be very clear that the reason why you are no longer continuing with your attempted return to work 
is because you are suffering from increased symptoms after your return or that your employer is not abiding by the accommodations that they had agreed to. Whatever the case may be, you want to make sure that if you do have to go back on to claim afterwards, you do have to try and invoke that recurrence clause that you're going to be in the best position possible. And documentation is critical. So in the early phases of a return to work, make sure that you are documenting everything and that those those records are going to show up in your doctor's clinical notes. That's really important. Tomorrow, let me ask you about a minute to go here before yeah. we wrap, just quickly. If someone's demanding, look, tomorrow, I really want to try and appeal. Any quick advice for them if they demand they want to do it? Look, I'm never going to stop anyone from doing it, John, if they yeah. want to, but but do it with information. Right? Information is power. This is why we do the shows. This is why we have the websites and the resources that we do, because I don't think a lot of people know exactly what they're getting into when they're going down that path with the disability insurer. And so if you have all that information, if you said, okay, Tamara, I've heard you, I've read the memo, I've read this and that, thank you very much. You know, I know more about the appeal process, but I'm going to give it a try. Fine. I'm not going to stand in the way of someone doing that, but I want people to know when it doesn't work, <laughs> we're here. And, and I'm not going to take it personally. If you've tried the appeal process and it wasn't successful, please don't hesitate to contact us again and really go into the idea of it that we're here to support individuals through this process. That's what we do day in and day out. We're happy to do it at any phase or stage that individuals might be with their disability insurer. Because at the end of the day, if your doctor is still supporting that you cannot work as a result of your health, those benefits should be paid. Full stop. That's what we're here to do. James, any last words? No, let's listen to our sponsors. We're, oh, we are done. And to reach out now, guys, one 821 5900 help at disabilityrights.ca and mydisabilityquestions.com. We'll catch you next time on the Disability Law Show.